So I got a new thing that every fan has to do before they die, if they haven't yet. And it's watch your favorite football team win a game because of a controversial play in a bar in the city of your rival. Hmm. It's, it, you can't beat it. So I was, I was traveling for Pearl Jam this weekend. It was a great trip, great weekend. And I was watching the Saints game during my layover in Atlanta, just uh, you know a few hours after Atlanta was humiliated by Tampa Bay. And uh, I'm walking into the place, and the guy, the bartender, is actually a cool guy. He's like, oh, we're closed, man. <laughs> you know, and the place is, like, packed. But I had, a, I had my Jimmy Graham jersey on and a Saints hat. And, you know, he sees me coming. He's like, yo, man, we're closed. I'm sorry. And I, I believed him at first. But anyway, so I'm watching that game, and that play that we just played happens. And my first thought was he hit him in the head. That's why they threw it. Right. Because, you know, you just see it real quick that first time or whatever. And then they're replaying it, and everyone was like, no, no, no face mask, didn't hit him. You know, it's bullshit, and everyone's all against the call. And now, just as you played this, this is the first time I heard him say that it was contact in the neck, which I didn't know was a rule, but Mike Pereira on Twitter had mentioned that that was an easy call. And you had asked me if it's on the other team, would I be upset? And I think it's one of those that... If they call it, you have to live with it, and they don't call it, they you have to live with it. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's one of those where it's like a, an interception that you just don't have a good replay of. Where if the ruling on the field is an interception, there's not enough evidence to overturn it. And if the ruling on the field was that it hit the ground or something, there's not enough evidence to overturn it. It's really borderline as an outsider looking at it. But that's the type of call that gets made. So. I think I would feel really silly shouting that they should have called it and i think you should feel a little silly if you're shouting that they shouldn't i think that's fair you know i think it's so close that you almost just have to live with what's called there right and we were talking also about the play last night it's interesting this this week of nfl football is going to be about these two game changing calls basically and i think i would be really upset if i was a patriots fan for the same for what you actually brought this point up the ref threw that flag and it was that's, the ref that was supposed to make that call the guy that was stand the back judge that's standing right there that's his call and i don't know who overruled him or why but i i, I understand why patriots fans would be upset today that's the toughest thing about it to me um i saw you and a couple other people post that like these calls happen the patriots got the advantage of a Totally missed, blatant hold. Yeah, and the Brady throw to Tompkins in the end zone that beat right. the Saints on the last play. Ridiculous right. hold on it. But the difference is, I like, I like I was saying off the air, holding calls and calls are missed all the time. But to have the guy make a call and a call that seems like it's at least arguable uh, to have it overturned 
that that's got to be rough because they they probably thought there for a second, oh oh, we got a chance still, and then no no, we're gonna we're gonna pick it up and then run out of the building and not really explain it. Yeah, that hurts. I, and I don't like the running out of the building and not explaining it part. I don't like that they don't really have to explain it at all. <clears throat> I mean, the NFL kind of protects their guy. All the leagues do this. I don't. I no, the umpires did such a great job in that World Series game with the. Uh, with the, the interference, the interference, the obstruction call. Right. You know, they did a press conference after Joe Torre, their boss, was there with them, and maybe, and, and it turns out that's the right call. So it's pretty easy to sit up there and answer all the questions when you know for sure you're right. Maybe it's right. a little bit more sure. difficult in this. So I don't know. Maybe I wonder how baseball handles that if it's the wrong call, if it's the same or different. But I don't know. I I don't like that part of it either. Interference. Someone should is say not- something to Belichick. Why they picked it up. Yeah, interference is not reviewable, right? No. Okay. Because, I, I mean, all all turnovers calls. are reviews. Right, so. but judgment calls aren't reviewable. Right. I have no problem maybe with them if they don't throw a flag at all running off and saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. But I think if you pick up the flag, you owe Belichick an explanation as to why you picked it up. Sure. I think. I totally agree. But welcome to Season 3, Episode number 34 of the Sportscasters, six days after our podcast with Artie Lang, which I want to thank everyone who checked it out and all those that uh, left a note to say they really enjoyed it. We really enjoyed having Artie on, and hopefully uh, he said he'd do it again, so hopefully (laughs) that's true someday. Yeah, I wonder if he says that to everybody. Uh, We got some great guests today, too. Uh, Katie Baker from Grantland. Interesting. I just realized this today. She was on Season 1, Episode 34 in 2011, and this is her first uh, time back, Season 3, Episode 34 in 2013. That's got to be a record. I would think. Time between guests? Yeah. It'd have to be close. Yeah, I don't know if there's anyone who's had two full years between appearances. I can't, nothing comes to mind. No, the only person I was thinking was maybe Jeff Passan because he was on the first. His was long, but it wasn't two not, years. No, probably think. not. But uh, we're going to talk to Katie. She's in Russia covering the KHL, to, trying to learn about what Kovalchuk was thinking when he jetted down right, there right. and kind of get some perspective ahead of the Olympics. She's going to be going back there to, to cover the Olympics. So try to get a little perspective on, on Russia. We're going to talk to her about all that. And, yes, everyone's going to roll their eyes because we are going to talk about <laughs> her experience. She's a Yale alum. She's a too, Yale though. alum that had the privilege yeah. of being in the press box at Pittsburgh and covering that, and she wrote a great article for Grantland about it. So we're going to talk a little Yale hockey with her too. And to continue our Pearl Jam Superfan Series, the second, we had A.J. Delirio on about a month ago. The uh, former editor of Deadspin was on to talk about his love for Pearl Jam. And today we're going to interview Jack McDowell from former Chicago White Sox pitcher, 1993 Cy Young Award winner, the second Cy Young Award winner to be on the podcast. John Smoltz was the first. Right, right. And we're going to talk to him about his love for Pearl Jam. And I recorded this interview already, and I'm going to tell you that if you like Pearl Jam even a little bit, you're going to love this interview because he tells some really incredible stories about meeting Eddie Vedder, about getting in a bar fight with Eddie Vedder, uh, about playing on stage with Pearl Jam, all kinds of really cool things. So if you like Pearl Jam, you're going to like this a lot. And I should mention, I mentioned Artie Lang was on the podcast last week. If you want to check that out, you can find it at our website, www.sports-casters.com. Uh, if you want more information, you can find that on Twitter at sports underscore casters. If you want to email us, sportscasters at gmail.com. And besides our website, the podcast is also on Stitcher and iTunes. And I want to thank Stitcher, who not only uh, tweeted about our show with Artie, they also sent an app alert, which I got. Oh, really? I was just walking down the street, and my phone buzzed, and I took it out, and there was an app alert about the interview. So really cool. cool of Stitcher to do that. 
All right, so we have Katie Baker on the show today. We have Jack McDowell. We're going to do the greatest of all time. We'll update the book club. We'll end with one last thing. Before we do any of that, we'll get things started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever. (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right. Starting again with the NFL as we usually do. Uh, I'm going to ask you again because I didn't remember last week. Was this Sunday night game flexed as well? This Sunday night game is the original game, I believe. It was always going to be Denver, New England. There's oh, okay. no reason to flex Denver, New England in. They were all over that. Yeah, that's yeah, true. That's yeah. true. Because uh, that obviously is the game of the week. You got the 9 1 Broncos going into New England to beat, uh, to face the Patriots. Shouldn't say beat because uh, Peyton doesn't have a lot of luck there. No, that's yeah. definitely been a disastrous place in his career for sure. And I guess. An NFC East battle between the Cowboys and the Giants where uh, someone's got to win that division. And it's going to be a mediocre team, but they're both fighting for it right now along with the Eagles. I think we can safely say it won't be Washington. Yes, that's true. But I wouldn't be shocked if it was any of the other three. No. It could easily, even the Giants. And this is kind of what they do. This is what the Giants do. Right. I mean, maybe not quite that bad, but they kind of get hot late and then they, Eli all of a sudden becomes what Peyton can't in the playoffs, it seems like. And, and the Cowboys always struggle in December. Right, right. But it'll be interesting. And we talked about this last week, how badly the Eagles needed a home win, and they got that last week. And Nick Foles has really been been good for them, really, the last three weeks or so. i, I got to tell you right now, I'm scared to death of the Saints game on Thursday. It feels like the ultimate trap, trap game. game. You know, right after, after the Yeah, it's not win, a particularly... Uh, the league probably isn't happy that this Falcons are. I mean, this would have been a premier Thursday night game. Right, everyone thought once. this game was going to be what Saints and Panthers will be in a couple weeks. Sure, right. You know, this these two teams at the top of this division battling. It just feels like such a trap for me. You got to go play your rival in their in their place. This is their Super Bowl. This is the only game they're going to play the rest of the year. It's going to mean anything. Right? Can we make things difficult on our rival? Uh, we have to travel on the short week, and. It's right before the the game against Seattle, which I'm sure the team is looking forward to. So it just feels like a trap. I'm nervous about it. Hopefully Peyton will have them ready. And uh, an interesting week for the Bills, too, in the sense that they're going to sit back and watch on their bye and see what the playoff landscape looks like for that last spot. Because I don't think any of the four win teams are eliminated yet in the AFC for that last spot. No, the AFC is pretty, pretty average. I was just looking at records right now because the one thing I noticed in my my fantasy football leagues is it seems like there's a lot of really, really good teams and a lot of really, really bad teams. And it almost seems like the NFL has mirrored that. You've got really high-end teams like Seattle, New Orleans, uh, Carolina, I guess you could lump in there, Denver, Kansas City, Indy, and New England are all f- four games above 500. And then you've got teams like Jacksonville... Uh, Washington, Minnesota, Tampa Bay, Atlanta, just all, all those teams are those teams are mostly six games below five. And the NFC has really established itself as the dominant conference. Remember, we thought that going in, then the AFC had a lot of success early. The NFC has eight teams 
who are five are over five hundred, and then two five and five teams. So ten teams that are five and five or better. The AFC has one, two, three, four, five teams that are above five hundred, and then two five and five teams. Yeah. So that's only seven teams as opposed to ten. If that means anything. But the four and six teams are one game out of the playoffs right now. Right, and same with if you're in the NFC East, it's you know, the Bills at four and seven are one and a half and that's why it's an interesting week to see how many teams ahead of them might lose and, and where will a four and seven team actually be in terms of the playoff picture. But like the Jets would make it if it ended today and they had what the worst loss of the week last week. The Jets have other than Jacksonville, who uh nobody's gonna catch at this point, the Jets have the worst net point, point differential. Point differential, yeah. yeah. Three big blowout losses. Yeah, every other week for them, too. It's really bizarre. I heard a stat, I think it was maybe Rome today, said uh, the Jets haven't won after a win and have won every game after a loss. Like, what a, what a bizarre... And that's the furthest into the season that has happened. Oh, really? Yeah, Aaron Rodgers is out again this week. Then I think after this week, we'll start to hear about whether or not he's going to be a possibility for the Thanksgiving game. Right, yep. Remember, next week, there's three games on Thursday uh, with Thanksgiving Day. It's uh, Green Bay at Detroit to start it off, Oakland and Dallas in the middle, and Pittsburgh and Baltimore at night. But that's still a week away. Uh, anything else you're looking forward to this week? No, I mean, my team's on a bye. Uh, Percy Harvin came back last week but didn't do much, so it'll be interesting to see him come back next week. I think see. they want him to be ready for the Saints game is my guess. I bet you see a little bit more of the easing in this week and he'll be full bore for the Saints on Monday night. Yeah, and I want to say that the 49ers kind of want to do the same thing with Michael Crabtree, just kind of ease him back into the lineup so he's there for the playoffs. But they've now lost two games in a row, and they've got to worry about making the playoffs. So. Right, they're going to have a game against Arizona in a couple weeks here that's going to be a really big game. Yeah, Arizona 6-4. and four. Yep. So good for them. Uh, yeah, that's all I got on the NFL. Um, there was something interesting, but I can't. I can't find it now. Well, if you think of it, let us know. There's some rumors that I don't know if anyone's made it official yet, but some reporter tweeted that Kubiak is out in Houston. I don't know that that hmm. has been made official, but that was on the RNFL subreddit all day today. You think that was one of those things where they're like, we're just about to fire him, and then he has to have a mini stroke on the field? <laughs> Now we got to pretend like we want him to be our coach for a couple. It's like a Seinfeld episode, right? Where she was going to break up with the guy, but then he had a stroke. <laughs> Who put cookies in his mouth? <laughs> That's right. I remember that. Uh, what would you do if your coach took you to your franchise best record last year and then was terrible I might, this year? I might give him a year. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't sound like they're going to. So uh, good luck, Gary Kubiak. I hope your health is better, but uh, they're not waiting, it sounds like. All right, well, over the weekend, my number th- number two thing moving on here, Jimmy Johnson, in a sport we don't talk about much, won his sixth championship, which is it's a lot. I mean, if you think about any sport, teams that have won six championships, it's not many. No. And I know in football, the Steelers have won six Super Bowls. I don't think anyone else has won six. San Francisco could have won six last year. And What's didn't. amazing about what he's doing is that is how regulated it is. You know what I mean? Like it's not like anyone. Now nah, I'm sure NASCAR fans going to come out and blast me for not knowing any better, but they're all basically on the same playing field, right? I mean, it's not like. Well, I think one thing that's happened when around when the economy got bad for a bit is the bigger teams, the the teams that okay. had the big money behind them. Were able to dominate for a bit. That makes sense. You know, and he won the five in a row. 
Gotcha. And then didn't win for a couple years, and now he's won his sixth. But I think, like you said, I think that it's getting more parity. And this is also, you know, there was a time back, and this has maybe helped him some years and hurt him some years, where it was just total points for the year. Someone will win. Now they reset before 10 races to go with the, the chase and the playoffs. But we're going to have to get, um, we're going to have to get Lars Anderson from Sports Illustrated. He's going to have a book out soon, so he's going to be on anyway. But we're going to have to talk to him and put into perspective where Jimmy Johnson is starting to look historically in the Mount Rushmore of NASCAR drivers. Because i got to imagine six championships. He's got to put him right, He's up, there. Put him right up there with yep. the Richard Petties and Dale Earnhardt's and even the Jeff Gordons of this generation is one of the, you know, the best of all time. So congratulations to Jimmy Johnson, six-time champion. All right, my second thing this week is a question uh, to you. What would you pay for uh, their terms, melted ice? Okay, so like Water. the ice, <laughs> the ice that Yale won the national championship. Sure, out, they melt a, that bit. and put it in a cup for me. And what will I pay for such a souvenir? Yes. Well, I got a mini hockey stick at the Frozen Four. Yeah, I bought one. And I too. paid, I think maybe twelve dollars for that. Right. Maybe a little less. I don't think I'd pay much more than that for the cup of water. The Chicago Blackhawks are selling not even a cup, but a vial of melted ice from the arena that they supposedly monitored and watched them take off and scooped into these little vials. That was in Boston. Okay, so it was... It wasn't even their arena. They called it... sketchy a bit. Well, they called it home ice, so it must have been the... Maybe not where the cup was won, but the games that they played on home ice. Gotcha. They're charging $99 a vial. Of course they are. Uh, it comes in a cool little like metal case. It's like foam on the inside, almost like the Stanley Cup is kept in, and like it's got these two little stoppers on either side that look like pucks. But yeah, ninety nine bucks for melted ice. They're calling it. They don't want to call it water, I guess. But you're basically paying ninety nine dollars for water. It might be the most ex- valuable liquid anywhere. You'd have to be really careful where you put it, because you couldn't keep that like next to your bed. You might wake up in the middle of the night because I keep water next to my bed. Oh, I just want you know, a little drink. Just have a drink. You went, that's it's people about you know someone's drinking that drunk one night on a dare. <laughs> how? Uh, what I want to know is how, like even waterproof stuff over time wouldn't like water just tends to get out like snow globes. Yeah, doesn't it evaporate? Yeah, that's what I wonder. Even in a vial, like is this somehow scientifically done so this is never going to go away, or is this like a ninety nine dollar present that gets crappier over time? I don't know. I, God willing, someday one of my hometown teams will win a championship and, and I will problem. buy some sort of stupid crap but I don't think it's going to be water <laughs> yikes alright my third thing today Urban Meyer you know him Don he's the head coach at Ohio State used to be the head coach at Florida during the yes days where he had all those good citizens Tim Tebow and a bunch of other guys like right, right. Aaron Hernandez and Riley Cooper <laughs> Tim Tebow and Aaron Hernandez. Right. That's the yeah. only time they'll be linked together. Well, Meyer is not happy with the BCS, and he even went as far as to call it flawed because right now his team is in the awful position of being number three in a sport that rewards you for being in one or two. And actually, Baylor, who is four, is probably going to pass them. And unless two of the those three undefeated teams lose... No matter what his team does, they won't play for a national championship. He said today, without spending much time on it, because it's not fair to our team for me to spend much time on it, I will say this. I think it's a flawed system. Uh, I'm just wondering, 
Did he think it was flawed when he was at Florida and <laughs> was able to lose, you know, at home to Ole Miss and still play for the national championship this year? Was it flawed then, or is this just like a new thing? Because I don't think it's changed much since it was rewarding his Florida teams with pretty much automatic bids into the NCAA championship game for winning the SEC. Yeah, I think I think every winning team uh, that has an argument thinks it's a flawed system if they're not playing for the national championship. So, yeah. And he even mentioned that he thinks it's going to be flawed when they switch to the playoffs. playoffs. He went on to say, I think there's going to be controversy with the playoffs too now. Well, sure. It's not a 64-team playoff. You can only have four guys. What's the fifth team going to feel like? Probably better than the third team that has a real legitimate argument. They can at least uh, – at least you can argue now, well, if you're – is there usually an argument – I guess I'll I'll pose you a question. Is there usually an argument that the fifth best team? Are there usually an argument for or five teams no, for the national championship? Very rarely. So then there. But won't the be argument one. now will be that it's not the championship; it's the semifinals. So it's almost a different argument. That's that's fine. I right. mean, if if you're going to make that argument, be better than the fifth best team in the country. That's right. So it's, I guess my point is, sour grapes, Urban Meyer. Shut up, and schedule someone in your in your non conference. Right, right. You know what I mean? These Big Ten teams, they know they play in the Big Ten. It's not like Urban Meyer woke up today and said, oh, man, our conference wasn't good this year. I thought it was supposed to be really good. That's why when we set up our schedule, our non-conference was Buffalo, (laughs) San Diego State, Cal. Buffalo, who they didn't perform all that well against. And Florida A&M, who they beat 76 to nothing. You know, maybe if you were worried about it, you know, don't schedule Florida A and M, who I'm not even certain is D one. They could very easily be one double A or whatever. Right, I'm right. not positive. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But maybe don't play them and play I don't know. Texas? I'm just don't I mean anyone who's sure. in a conference that sure. matters. So whatever. Sour grapes. Urban Meyer in Ohio State, and you're probably not even that good anyway. Nobody wants to see you get to the national championship game and lose to Alabama by 40 points <laughs> like you did to LSU. You know, Ohio State did LSU a few years ago. All right, I had two things I could use for this spot or the uh, one last thing, and I'll, I'll go with the, the more sad story here. Uh, a man dies trying to set the free diving record. If you're not aware oh, I heard of about what this. free diving yeah. is. Uh, he was a newbie too. I believe... I believe it was Sports Illustrated because it was a print magazine I used to get, and it was about the only sports magazine there was. Uh, highlighted how dangerous this sport is, and a man recently died. He was ho- hoping to reach 236 feet. Basically, free diving is you take a breath, and then you start to swim down. Uh, and then you swim back up. Well, he reached about 200 feet, or a little stopped, more than 200 right? feet. He stopped, came back up to the surface. Flashed the OK sign to the organizers, and then 30 seconds later, just lost consciousness and died. And there was blood coming out of his. It was a pretty dr- dramatic scene and everything. Yeah, uh, this article I read. This is on CNN.com. is kind of weird in that it talks about how it has competition freediving has an enviable safety record, but the sport can never be risk free. Something understood by all freedivers. Now they say it has an enviable safety record, but they also say that in 2008, 60 people died doing it. Now, I'm sure there are more people than that die than that every year from football-related injuries. And maybe it doesn't get heavily reported because it's almost commonplace now. But that said, there's millions of people that play football. 
in high school in Little Loop or whatever. There's not millions of people. Like, you can't just go based on numbers. And 60 people dying from one sport in 2008 is crazy high anyway. Now, they do say that some of the statistics keep track of things that it says uh, are, the numbers kept include people who free dive as part of other activities like spear fishing. So if you go under to spear fish and you die, they count that as free, free diving. But either way, I don't know whether to have some sort of crazy respect for these guys or to think it's a ridiculous sport uh, that it's too dangerous. These guys talk about when you go underwater, your, the, the pressure on your body forces like blood into your lungs and stuff like that, just because there's so much pressure and it's, it's terrifying to me. Drowning yeah, I'm gonna seems, take a, I'm gonna take a pass on for yeah. Diving. Drowning seems like it'd be awful. Maybe that's a good way to put it. Like I would try to surf someday because the surfing part isn't what kills you. It's like a shark, and that's still like a crazy fluky thing. The free diving is what actually kills you, and it's you got to push yourself to get as far down as you can, knowing that at some point you're gonna have to turn around. And go back up that entire way you went down 200 feet that's 20 stories he had to surface uh that's terrifying i i feel bad for this guy 32 year old guy that's that's my age from brooklyn uh i mean our thoughts go out to his family but boy what what a what a scary sport all right we are going to take a break and come back with katie baker from grantland well, they know that they got to be sure if, they, if they're going to have any opportunity to freeze a puck, freeze it. If they're going to have a chance to deflect the puck in the corner, they got to do it. Here's a chance and score! Yale has done it! All right, our next guest is from Pennington, New Jersey, and is a graduate of Yale University. After college, she spent six years working for Goldman Sachs, where she was a member of the Asset Management Division. She has contributed to Deadspin.com and has provided columns for New York Times Magazine, Gawker, and other publications. In 2010, she left New York City and moved to San Francisco, where she is a full-time sports writer for Grantland.com. She's making her third appearance on the podcast today. A warm sourcecasters, welcome to Katie Baker. How are you doing today, Katie? Hi, I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming back. I think you set a record today as the person with the longest gap in between appearances. I was looking, and it was 2011 last time you were on, so I don't know how that happened. Yeah, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's my fault. I thought you were going to say I set a record for the person who is recording a podcast from the farthest away. Well, that is also it's, a record. It's a, it's, a little bit, uh, it's a little bit worse than that. Yeah, so you're in Russia right now, huh? You, so tell me about... All right, so we got a lot to talk about, but you're in Russia and you mentioned, so let's just start there. So I, I guess I'm assuming that you're there to cover the KHL and you're going to write something about it for Grantland. Is that true? Uh, yeah, I am. I'm, uh, I'm spending two weeks here and going to a couple cities. Uh, and so I'm reporting live right now from Magnitogorsk, which is uh, down south near the, the Ural River. And um Leaving in a couple hours to fly to St. Petersburg. Now, what was what was the pitch like? What exactly did you pitch to? Uh, like, what is the? I don't know if I want to say thesis of the story, but what is it you're down there reporting on specifically? Well, um, when I go to St. Petersburg, so I haven't 
I don't want to jinx myself in case it doesn't work out, but uh, in St. Petersburg especially, there's two players, Ilya Kovalchuk and Alex Ponikarovsky, who sort of high-profile uh, left the NHL. Right. Obviously, Kovalchuk a little bit more high-profile, but and went back to the KHL. And so with the Olympics coming up, I thought it would be a good idea to come here and really try to get a sense for the culture here with respect to hockey and see why some of these players have, have chosen to do that. And then I also wanted to see more than just a sort of a big city. I wanted to go to a, uh, a smaller town and, and see what the culture was like, was like here for the KHL. And uh, so it's, it's been incredibly, uh, it's been an incredibly rewarding trip and really illuminating. And so hopefully it will, result in a couple of good articles and then also going forward result in me being able to have a broader perspective when I'm at the Olympics in February. Now is Kolchuk playing? I, and I know he was hurt at some point earlier in the year, but is he, is he back? It's funny how, you know, he goes away. He's still one of the biggest players in the world, but he might as well be playing in 2035. I mean, I have as big of a connection with the KHL, I guess, as I do with the year 2035 at this point. I know. Well, it doesn't help that the time difference is, such that, I mean, now that I've been here for a few weeks, I barely know what's going on in the NHL. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I th- I, as far as I know, he is playing. I hope I hope he is. Okay. Um, from what I saw, he was, and uh, yeah, but he was he was injured, and I was kind of keeping keeping an eye on that as I was planning on coming. Yeah, it, it's got it's going to be really interesting to, to see what he says to you because just remember that just being so strange. I mean, I guess we shouldn't be that surprised that a Russian player would maybe make this decision, especially with the money that there is to be made in the KHL now is, is not that different from, especially for a player like Kovalchuk. But I just remember hearing that and thinking like, really? Like, you know what I yeah. mean? It just seems so strange, especially after he had just signed such a big deal with the Devils too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I, I'm interested to see what, what other people think, but one of my theories has been, uh, I think the timing had probably some to do with the Olympics. Um, I'm actually kind of fascinated to see who will be the, the Russian Olympic captain, if it will be Ovechkin or whether it'll be Kovalchuk kind of as a, a something of a political reward for, right. um, you know, I, in some senses. But, uh, but it was interesting. During the lockout, I was in Ufa for the World Juniors right as the lockout ended uh, in, in January of, of, of this year, of last season. And I, you know, if you if you recall, Kovalchuk and a couple others didn't want to come back right away for training camp. Right. They wanted to play in the All Star game, and of course, that kind of riled some people up, which I thought was a little bit absurd. Uh, you know, what, what's a couple more days of training camp? Um, but I think for a lot of these players, or for some of these players, playing in the lockout during the lockout overseas, they they got to be kind of back home and, and see what it was like and give it a test run. And uh, I'm sure it changed a lot of minds. I mean, the, it was kind of funny that the other night, uh, Magnitogorsk was playing, uh, I believe it was uh, Donbass, the Ukrainian team, and Ruslan Fedotenko was the captain. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I, you know, he was just on the Rangers a couple of years ago. And so I, more and more players coming over here, uh, Burmese Straub from Winnipeg recently, and uh, it really is, the league really is seeking to, and I think beginning to establish itself as a real competitor, 
to the NHL. Maybe not a wholesale competitor at this point, but on the margins, certainly uh, players are making that decision. I know you're not a scout, and I, I don't want to turn you try to make you feel like <laughs> you have to act like one. But when you're watching a game, does it feel NHL to you? I mean, what about the the quality of the play? I mean, obviously, there's guys who can be MVP quality NHL players like Kovalchuk in the league, but when it's the fourth line out there, does it feel AHL to you? Or, I mean, how does, how does the game feel when you're there? Uh, I think what I've, what I've really noticed, I mean, they play on bigger ice, so you, you can definitely see the difference in the sense of just the, the flow of the game and the amount of skating, and there's not as much hitting, um, although there is still hitting. And uh, the... The team I've I've been in Magnet and Gorsk and they've they've won uh, the, they had four home games and they've won them all so I kind of I'm, I'm, I was here at a good time and they actually have the the number one and two leading scorers in the KHL on their team right now so I mean they had some they were kind of reminding me of like the San Jose Sharks at points where they it was just tic tac toe hockey uh, there was a couple of nights ago there was a a, a moment in which I thought that I actually I didn't look at the scoreboard. I assumed they were on the power play for like for a minute or so because they just took five shot attempts, pass, 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 and scored on it. And then I looked and said, "Oh my gosh, that was all at even strength." So, um, you know, I, I'm interested to go to an, another city and, and see another, uh, you know, see another style. But um, I've been incredibly impressed by the play. And the one thing that stuck out to me is. Contrary to popular belief, uh, Russians do back check. So. <laughs> Not only do they have the top two leading scores, they actually have the top three. I'm looking right oh, now. Oh, really? Yeah, they have. Yeah, probably the probably the other guy in their line. <laughs> yeah, and not only. And another thing that's interesting, maybe to only me, but the leading score is number ten, and that's only interesting to me. I know I told you this in email. I was a huge, huge Bray fan, and I know yeah. so many of the the guys in the league. From I've always been so interested in Russian hockey. I know what a big uh, influence Bray was on so many that are in playing in the league now and I think it was even Ovechkin who was talking about I think it was right after the um the goal Ovechkin scored in his first Olympics against Canada I think it was a one to nothing game and he got a pass out front and buried it to to get the win I think it ended up eliminating Canada and Russia went on I remember him talking about about Bray that day and the influence he had but um what about uh the social aspect of Russia I know there's a big big controversy about some of the laws there and, and people have opinions on what athletes should do based on the way uh, Putin runs the country and his views on homosexuality. I don't want to get real political or anything, but do you get any sense for, for how the country is preparing for the Olympics and, and what it might be like there in a few months? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd say that it's not something I really asked anyone here. Um, just kind of didn't want to get into it and right. it's almost like, you know, you don't talk politics at, at the dinner table and in, in some ways that's how I felt. Uh, one thing that surprised me a lot and, and really touched me was how unbelievably welcoming everyone was to me in this city and, uh, you, you know, they, I, I left the, the press box last night after being here for a few days and I was... I was getting almost a little emotional to to leave some of my new friends. So um, I I now, I now kind of wish maybe over a few vodka shots I had <laughs> I had tried to to get the sense, but I didn't want to open it up to to some sort of 
um, debate. But now that I feel a little bit more comfortable in in the country, and um, especially going to a place like St. Petersburg, that I would I would think may generally be a little more open minded. Um, it is something that I I need to kind of take the temperature of some people and, and see. But uh, you know, I will say in terms of the Olympics, they're Obviously, it's something on which the country is is staking an enormous amount of pride, and um, they're very excited for it, just as I, th- I think we all are. And um, I think it'll be a great game. So I think that obviously it's a really unfortunate situation, and it's unfortunate that um, that so many athletes who have nothing to do with with this are are kind of being put on the in the spotlight and ask their opinion about it, which I understand obviously, but um, hopefully we can, hopefully a lot of that can, can get out of the way. And, you know, and if we see some, some athletes choose to, to really try to make a political statement, then I am, I'm all for that as long, as long as they can do so in a safe way. Uh, so it, it's, it's going to be something that's going to hang over the games, but I think a lot of times when the games actually begin, uh, the the athletics hopefully will will take over and become the story. You had quite the year last year. Now I'm thinking about this. So you were down there for the World Juniors. So you got to see Seth Jones and the boys win a win a gold medal there. And then you were in Pittsburgh with with me and my whole family and got to see Yale win a national championship. And let's let's talk about that for a minute because I I do want to talk to you. All of our listeners are now rolling their eyes across the country right now. They're like, <laughs> Oh my God, we're gonna talk about this again. Here and, we go again. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so well, they don't, you know, so, you know, I want to talk about it again. So what? Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so you wrote one of the best articles I thought um, out of that for Grantland because you had a really interesting perspective, having covered the team in a in an era of, of maybe not the well, this is an understatement, maybe where they weren't quite that <laughs> successful, and then yeah. being able to go to Pittsburgh and and to see, I guess the the you know Keith Elaine putting a team together and I want to let's see how do I want to ask this I don't want to I don't want to put you in a spot but I really do want to did you read Butcher Grass's column last week uh, that he wrote about college hockey no I know I, you, you you're I, out I, there all right I'm so, in Russia I haven't read anything right. all right so Butcher Grass wrote this column he, he went to the BU uh BC game on Friday and he went to Yale and Quinnipiac on Saturday and he wrote a column and the first half was about his time in, in uh, BU BC and it was Really, a really incredibly balanced, you know, BU's perspective, BC's perspective, and then he wrote the Yale and Quinnipiac thing, and it's it's about Quinnipiac, really. I mean, you, the only mention of Yale is that's who Quinnipiac was playing, and that yes, Yale is in Connecticut. And I asked him about it, and I said, you know, I just said, well, what about, you know, where's Yale in this article? And he just wrote back to me and said they're not cooperative, and. Oh. And it was interesting because right before the Minnesota game last year, uh, one of the college hockey writers predicted that Minnesota would win seven to nothing, and I thought that that was a bit of an absurd pick. So I asked him about it, and he said, "Well, you know, if I'm being honest, Keith Elaine stiffed us last week after the uh, ECAC championship, so I did it out of spite." And I guess what I wanted to ask you specifically. Uh, not to anything about Butcher Grass or about Ken Schott, the guy who wrote that, but more of what is your, do you have any, I mean, you're an alum, so I don't know if that makes it easier, but do you find it difficult to have access to the uh, hockey team? I guess is what I'm asking in a long-winded way. 
Oh yeah. Well, I mean, um, I've, I've, I, uh, I was only there really for the frozen four in right. the sense of, in, in the sense of covering it. And so I had heard rumors to obviously, to be honest, that, that Keith Lane was, could be difficult. Yeah. And we're not breaking it. any ground saying that. I mean, no, nobody's exactly. going to be and like, Oh my God, they said Keith Lane's difficult. I mean, he knows it's, it's like difficult. saying John right. Tortorella is difficult. Right. You know, exactly. A, yeah. Um, and I think it was at the, the ECAC tournament where Yale had a, a, a pretty unimpressive yeah, showing. Yeah, it was a disaster. Um, he stiffed everyone. Yeah, and he yeah. was sort of notorious for his his reaction following the tournament. I think he may have even like refused to speak to the media. Which is, he just didn't show up. Yeah. They were yeah. waiting so, for him in the press room, and he went on the bus, and my brother said they left. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. his reputation preceded him, but luckily in the Frozen Four, it's so heavily managed that he, you know, he had to be there. He he had to go to all these press conferences and and sit there and and not not berate anyone or not have a bad attitude. And <laughs> then obviously they were winning, so that kind of changes things. But uh, it's disappointing to hear that, especially because they're. I don't know if you've interacted with them at all, but their sports publicity director Steve Kahn is like one of the best in the business, and I'm sure it's frustrating to him uh, not to put words in his mouth. Right. I haven't spoken to him about it, but. Um, and you know, it's, it's funny cause he also helps run the frozen four. So, uh, that's how well respected he is in the industry. And it's obviously, it's not going to benefit Yale at all. If, if, if people like John Butchergrass are going to New Haven or going to, you know, the games at Quinnipiac and, and aren't able to, to, to talk to people, that's, you know, that's disappointing for me to hear. Right. And you know, I mean, I have the lucky privilege of pretty much knowing all of the players on the team. And, and I wrote Butcher Grass an email, and I said, you know, I, my brother, he was a, a pretty decent recruit. I, I don't think they have stars in hockey, but he would have been at least a three-star recruit, in, to put it in basketball or football terms. And, I mean, he, the RPI was probably the, the school that recruited him the most. And, I mean, the coach there, uh, he, I mean, he he put the full-court press on, you know. And then Keith Elaine, on, in comparison, just the other day, uh, we saw him at Maury's, actually, and uh, I said hello to him, and he said hello back. And up until that point, uh, I think he had said hello to my dad once, and he had said, your son mauled me last night to my mom at the Frozen <laughs> Four in reference to my brother and him uh, hugging after the uh, – the, the, and that's it. That's, that's yeah. all, You know what I mean? So he is very, yeah. very quiet uh, for sure, but – my point, I guess, was that these these kids, these kids are the top one percent kids I've ever met. You know, yeah. like we were just there last weekend. Um, I had just got engaged like the day before we went, and congratulations! Oh, thank you. And uh, every single player that I seen came up to me and congratulated me. So I mean, I, I'm sure my brother must have said something. I don't know, but yeah. to me, I, that would be in one year out the other if one of my teammates said that to me. But you know, here two or three days later, they're all So I I don't know, but anyway, uh yeah. back to the back to the Frozen Four itself. So I had mentioned how you were there in such a down period for them and that being such a, a great night. Just tell me your your overall reaction kind of were you flying out there thinking I can't believe I'm going to see Yale in the Frozen Four and then you know, then maybe walking down into the locker room after thinking, wow, I'm actually going to interview players on Yale. The last time I did this, you know, it was it was senior night at, at Ingalls and they were talking about <laughs> five and 19 or something. And now they're <laughs> national champions. Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, I, I was I was going to go to the Frozen Four either way. And I remember watching, you know, because they not only did did they have to kind of make a run through the tournament themselves, they needed some help 
from what was it? It was Michigan. Michigan. Yep. Yeah. Michigan needed to, um, or Notre Dame needed to beat Michigan. Beat right. Michigan. Yep. Yeah. And I was watching that game and hanging on to it. And so when when Michigan lost and and Yale made the tournament, I started getting emails from from friends saying we're going to to Pittsburgh and um and then I think the most the most special I mean obviously the the actually winning was was the most special moment but that that semifinal game where they won in overtime that was that was exciting for for many reasons one of them socially I had a lot of friends that were kind of poised to buy plane t- you know buy a ticket to come to the final if they made the final and they did so not only just being an amazing sports moment, I got to see a lot of a lot of my friends and a lot of the former hockey players all came in and uh, just it it's the Frozen Four is one of my favorite events in hockey period and so to have my alma mater there, especially having covered them like you said in a time when you know, they had made then they had made the NCAA tournament like once in you know since what (laughs) decades and decades and it was like the most shining shining moment and the most revered team and all they did was make the tournament and I think then lose a game so uh to all of a sudden obviously they had been setting the stage for it in previous years and I think they had a a team a few years before before the the championship team that most people thought was gonna have the best chance to be the championship team and but to see the the growth in the program and and to see the to to be there and see all the alumni, I mean, it's just it's just really a a unique and and special moment. And the hardest part was sitting in the press box and not, not being a total right. a total unprofessional. And I was sitting next to Sean Leahy from Yahoo um, during the semifinal game, and I said. I said to him, you know, I went to Yale, so I'm gonna I'll be professional, but just so you know, and I was fine the whole game until. Andrew Miller went on the breakaway and <laughs> I grabbed his arm and squeezed it like, you know, as if I was like going into labor or something. And the poor guy probably had a, a bruise for a week, but, um, but he understood. <laughs> I love, I love hearing these stories and that's really why I asked you because, um, you know, I, I've heard so many from, you know, Jeff Malcolm and his mom telling me their particular journey from, you know, Calgary, Alberta to, to that day, him winning the national championship on his birthday and playing as well as he did. And, I remember talking to someone on on Christmas, and they were asking me about the team. I remember saying, you know, it's really going to be up to Malcolm and kind of, you know, how good he's going to be. I think they can beat anybody, but they really going to need Jeff to step up and and boy, did that that kind of work out. But you know, yeah. my particular journey, and I don't know how much you know about it, maybe a little bit, maybe none, but um, right around was actually they were on Cornell. They were on TV. They played Cornell. Stu Wilson scored an overtime goal to win and then the next day they were playing at Colgate and I was going to go down and watch the game but instead I had kind of a little issue with my Crohn's disease I ended up going to the hospital and that was I think January 28th and I was there until March 14th and I had surgery and right around that time Jeff got hurt and the team started to do poorly I think they lost six games in a row and I remember after every game my brother would call me and everyone was just so down and they lost a big game to Quinnipiac in there, and he's like, I just wish I was home, and, you know, I want to come see you, and it's so hard to be here and all this stuff. And I remember just saying to him, like, don't worry about it. Jeff's going to be back. You guys going to be okay. And when you guys go to Pittsburgh, I said, I'll be there, you know, to watch you guys in Pittsburgh. And I think I was just saying it's – I don't know if I believed it at the time or not, you know, but then 
I remember watching that that Michigan game uh, like you yeah. and uh, my brother and all the guys they were at uh, Wild Wings, and <laughs> he kept he kept texting me, you know, being on the bubble is the worst thing ever, and uh, this is miserable, and Andrew won't come out of his room, and <laughs> you know, just like all this stuff, and then uh, you know they they get there and uh, and um, just to, to be able to be there and to be that to be able to share that. Um, yeah, but today it was it was incredible. Yeah, uh, I remember your I remember your 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 tweets. Yeah, we went, at the time we and got to go you, viral. You became yeah. a little a, a, a mini celebrity yourself. Yeah, that was fun. So, all right, we're talking with Katie Baker from Grantland, who is talking to us from Russia, and she's got to get on a plane. And we kind of babbled the the half hour away. I don't. <laughs> so I just wanted to <laughs> thanks. Yeah, for the, I have another yeah. I have another minute or two if you need. But right, <laughs> yeah. Well, let's do it again uh, before you go for the Olympics, and we can talk a little bit more about the NHL and, and some of the other stuff I wanted to ask you about specifically what it's like to cover hockey specifically for Grand Land. But um, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. And have a safe trip. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon, I hope. Thanks so much. It'll, it'll definitely not be as long before the next appearance <laughs> as it was since the last, I promise. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Bye. All right, I want to thank Katie Baker for being on the podcast, making a long-awaited return. Really enjoyed having her on. And if you didn't enjoy our Yale talk, I'm, so, I'm sorry. <laughs> when we I, have, I can't uh, help myself. When we do the uh, the book club in between here, I think we thank the first guest. Twice. No, it didn't. I didn't. Oh, we didn't this no, time. I held off. Oh, okay. I did it right. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, Breaking down that fourth wall. Again. Yeah, the, the greatest of all time. We've been having fun with this. I think we kind of nailed it last time. I listened back. It sounded cool. I think it's getting to be a better segment every week. So Don and I declare three things, each the greatest of all time in separate categories that basically we create ourselves. And uh, Don's going to kick us off this week. My first greatest of all time this week is going to be my most hotly debated, I believe, because of my uh, American ignorance. But I'm going to say the best pasta is lasagna. Oh. Uh, I'm sure... To me, uh, I love Italian food. To me, it's all about the noodles and then tons of cheese and meat on everything. If there was like lasagna with sausages, they make lasagna with Italian sausage. Sure, that that that's right in my wheelhouse. I want meat and cheese and noodles and a red sauce, and I'm good. The worst of all time is lasagna without meat vegetarian lasagna yeah what a disappointment it's a big tease i'll still eat it joke. it's still good it's still got the best of all the other stuff i like but yeah the meat the meat puts it over yeah that's that's a brutal brutal tease i don't have a huge complaint there i'm a big fan of the nokis i love a good plate of nokis that's the little shells yeah potato okay so and i like filled pasta too I like filled stuff. I need yeah. cheese on it. Like melted mozzarella cheese on everything is is clutch for me. Yeah. All right. Um, this one, it's specific, and I've said this before, and I said it on Twitter, but I wanted to do it today. I almost did it last week. But I want to say that Marcus Colston is the greatest Saints wide receiver of all time. 
doing that today because on Sunday he set two more Saints records, uh, most yards as a receiver and most yards from scrimmage. Um, I know it's said a lot, but maybe it's easy to for, it's easy to forget that this guy was picked fourth from last yeah. in the draft in the seventh round. He went to a school, Hofstra, that doesn't even have football anymore, and he played tight end there. Uh, Drew Brees recently said that he was almost cut in between minicamp and training camp. Wow. And by the end of training camp, he basically went into opening day in Cleveland as the number one receiver. Is he, in a way, the most relatable saint of all time? Because they were He's kind of that... Unbelievably down-to-earth yeah. and humble. And if you want to get a sense of what kind of guy Marcus Colston is, the the guy who reports for the team website interviewed him after the game on Sunday, and they asked him about it, and he just was like, you know what, to me this game was about Garrett getting back and making three field goals and picking the team up and winning the game, and I haven't really thought at all about what I'd accomplish, but there will be a time for that when my career is over, but right now we're just focused on Atlanta or whatever. And sometimes that stuff can come off as kind of trite, like an athlete fake humble type of a thing right or just cliche but i don't i just he's real believable and he's got the most touchdowns in the history of the team most catches most yards and the most yards from scrimmage he's the greatest saints wide receiver of all time and if it wasn't for drew Brees, he'd probably be the greatest player of all time not to downplay colston by any means but is there even a receiver that would be close like there's no argument there's right? two guys that you could potentially argue for it's joe, joe horn, horn and eric martin Okay. Eric Martin is the guy that Colston always breaks his records. Okay. You know what I mean? When right. like, when Colston passed those two. It was him. Right. It was, you know, Martin that he passed, not Horn, as some people would think. Gotcha. But no, not really. And he's not done. He's right. sh- he's going right. to shatter these records. Right. Not good enough for fantasy football, though. <laughs> two weeks ago, everyone said to drop Yeah, him. he's had two really good weeks. So yeah. I guess he was just banged up, I guess. Yeah, he had three bad weeks. I mean, you can't. Jesus. <laughs> uh, my second greatest of all time, this one kind of falls in that Lifetime Achievement Award, although he's arguably the greatest. The greatest X-Men of all time, or X-Man of all time, is Charles Xavier, Professor X. He made the team, so he created them. He got them together. He arguably is the most powerful, uh, and it's kind of cool powers too, so... I think he would fall in, like, who's the greatest right now, but uh, of all time, it's definitely Charles Xavier. All right. Uh, kind of a different topic, but one I think I feel pretty passionate about. The greatest children's author of all time is Roald Dahl, uh, and I think by a pretty wide margin. Uh, he is the author of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which is arguably yep. one of the greatest children's books of all time. James and the Giant Peach. James and the Giant Peach. The Witches, which is one of the better uh, movies even to watch uh, around Halloween time. The BFG is maybe his, his right, best right. book. Uh, the Big Friendly Giant. And he has a real diverse uh, category, you know, things like Matilda. Okay. I didn't even mention Matilda yet, which is also a movie now with uh, Danny DeVito. Right, right. Uh, but you can go from Matilda to James and the Giant Peach to the BFG to his two uh, biographies, Boy and Going Solo, which is the the sequel. Um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory has a sequel called Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator. 
He has shorter works like the Fantastic Mr. Fox, which I think is a movie now too. I believe it was. And yeah. uh, just all kinds of great writing. And um, he died on November 23rd, 1990. So wow. it's going to be the anniversary of his death in a couple of days here. So I wanted to give Roald Dahl a shout out as the greatest children's author of all time. My third greatest of all time this week is also kind of an anniversary. Uh, 15 years ago today, after struggling to find a publisher, Sierra Entertainment, or I think it was then called Sierra Online, uh, picked up a game by Valve called Half-Life. Uh, that turned Valve really into a household name, and now they're monsters, and they have the Steam platform, and they're about to put out a Steam box and innovative new controllers and all that craziness. But I'm going to say the greatest first-person shooter of all time is Half-Life 2. Uh, it doesn't... I don't want to say it's the best game of all time, but what it did was kind of make made the argument that video games could be art and it did it as a mainstream title. Like there's a lot of independent titles that kind of say that kind of do the same type of thing or I can argue that, but this is a mainstream title that sold millions of copies and it was movie quality. It, the story was awesome. The gameplay itself doesn't, I've played it three or four times through and the gameplay is kind of linear. Uh, if you played it now, and having never played it before, it wouldn't seem as groundbreaking as it was. But for when it came out, the story, the characters in it, uh, it's phenomenal. It It's like you're playing a movie, and for me, it's the greatest first-person shooter of all time. Interesting, because without knowing, I also have a video game-themed greatest of all time here in the light of PlayStation 4 okay. being released last week. And Microsoft One, is that what it's called? Xbox One. Xbox One. How confusing. C- coming out this week. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to say that I still believe the 8-bit Nintendo is the greatest video game system of all time. I think back to what I've owned. So I owned the Nintendo first. Mm-hmm. Then I had a Sega Genesis. was my 16-bit system. And then I've had PlayStation 1, Through 2, three. and 3. Right. And I plan on getting, at some point, a PlayStation 4. I've never done Xbox. And I never did get to it. Oh, and I have a Wii. Right. So I had a Wii in there as well. But I didn't have Super Nintendo or Nintendo 64, although I played them both quite a bit right. at friends' houses and things like that. But I think that the 8-bit Nintendo is still the best because, well, I think probably if we had a separate category of greatest video game of all time, it would be hard not to say it would be the super, first Super Mario Brothers. Although that's such a broad category, as you just pointed out. You right. could take that a million different ways. So we might get 75 different arguments on that one. I actually thought about doing this exact category. Yeah, but I, I, I was leaning toward the Super Nintendo, even though okay. I never owned it. But it's it's a really tough call, and that's why I didn't I didn't want to put my name on it. As yeah, I, I, I'm okay with putting my name on Nintendo because I think I take it from more of a a broader sense, more of a a pop culture, uh, an impact on culture. I would totally agree. You know, as much yep. not as much as like a gamer's perspective. Sure. You know, there might be a gamer out there who's going to say it's you know. Sega CD was number one or something. I mean, probably not that one, but you know what I mean? There might be, for a gamer, something that's significantly better. But in terms of impact on culture and society, it doesn't get much bigger than Nintendo. And Nintendo, when it came out, actually changed the way kids live their lives. Right. You know, no more were we outside on the street picking up teams for kickball 
as much as we were wanting to be inside more and more to play Zelda and Nintendo and and Mike Tyson's punch out. I was just reading in Tyson's book about how he got seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars for Nintendo to put his name on that game. And it's so many of the titles that started with the eight bit Nintendo are still released today. You know, there's still Zeldas. There's still Mario, Mario Brothers. You know, Final Fantasy, I think, is still around, or it was for a long time. That started there. So many things. So I think as a somewhat uneducated, a guy who mostly played video games to play Madden and hockey and sports games and things like that, not really a true gamer, looking at it from a more broader uh, scope as terms of impact on society and its effect, I think that the 8-bit Nintendo is the greatest video game system of all time. Yeah, their founder just recently died, too. I don't remember the exact day. I know I had it on my Facebook. Uh, he didn't actually create... It might be unfair to Steve Jobs to say he was the Steve Jobs because this guy was kind of just a visionary in that. But I think Steve Jobs probably, as much as people pick on him for not actually creating anything, he probably had a little more to do with the direction of the actual products than the Nintendo president did. But the Nintendo president had a vision of what he wanted the company to be, and it started off as a playing card company. And right. uh, like Pokemon, I believe, started as a is a card game first and just this guy to change that and then to come up with the super famicon or whatever the heck it was called and it's pretty visionary and i would totally agree from a pop culture standpoint there was no more important thing and it probably marked the the beginning of the end for arcades right so the greatest of all time this week i have the greatest children's author of all time is roald dow the greatest saints wide receiver of all time is marcus colston and the greatest video game system of all time the original 8-bit nintendo for me, the greatest pasta dish of all time is lasagna. The greatest X-Man of all time is Xavier. And the greatest first-person shooter of all time is Half-Life 2. We're going to take a break and come back and continue our Pearl Jam Superfan series with former Cy Young winner and Chicago White Sox pitcher Jack McDowell. All right, quick book club update. We got a lot going on for the book club this month. And actually, well, let's start with this. First thing was two podcasts ago now, season three, episode number 32. We were lucky enough to have David Shoemaker on who wrote a book called The Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling. It's a really great read and was a really fun interview to do if you're interested in wrestling at all. And talking a little bit about wrestling that happened 10, 15 years ago, I think David and I did a really great job on the interview. want to thank him for that. And again, really suggest this book, The Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling. Now, on the podcast next week, we're going to try to pretend we're smart, Don. We're going to be sophisticated. We're going to have an academic on, Uh a guy named Larry J. Sabato, who wrote a book called The Kennedy Half Century. The Presidency, Assassination, and Lasting Legacy of JFK. The reason we're doing this is because on Friday, it will be the 50th anniversary of the assassination of JFK. And I was actually lucky enough to be in Dallas a couple days ago, and I went to Daily Plaza. And I was able to stand at the X, where Kennedy's head was unceremoniously fractured, we'll say, and look up at the sixth floor window, sixth floor window in the Texas School Depository. And I'll tell you right now, that is a very plausible shot. Yeah. It is by no means a long shot to think some guy could have pulled that off. Yeah, don't think... A very unscientific just stand there and look at where it came from and think, that's pretty clear. 
<laughs> right, right. It's a pretty clear shot there. Is there anything different? Do they say like? Is there? Less I think there's a couple or... trees that are grown in there that weren't there. Oh, okay. So it'd be making but it more. But for the most part, it's pretty preserved. It's pretty cool. You can. So when you're coming down, it was on Elm Street where he shot, and the the, the depository is now a government building, and the sixth floor is preserved, and you can pay for a tour there, and you can go around up there. We didn't do that because everyone says. It's a ripoff. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of boring. And they don't let you get close to what's cool there. But you can walk down the street, down Elm Street, and there's the first X where he was shot where he got hit in the throat. And then a little bit up from that, there's the shot where he was hit in the head, another X. And then the grassy knoll is there, and you can't walk on the grass. The grass you, you could. There's no way it's going to stop you. There's a sign that says you shouldn't. Oh, okay. You know, and the fence that is notorious you can is there still. See the fence. And then you can go to where Zapruder shot the Zapruder film. Mm. You can stand there. And uh, it's eerie. And I was going to say, history is a weird thing in that. Like, if you did that the day afterward, you 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 would be seen as morbid. Well, I remember going down there thinking, I really want to get my picture on the X. Because people do this. Now, the interesting thing about that is traffic is going. <laughs> okay. So you got to, like, kind of rush out to the X, get your picture, and rush off before you get hit by a car. Right. But uh, when I got there, I was thinking, you know what? I don't want to smile on that. Yeah, yeah. So I just took a picture of it kind of on its own. and Well, like I've been to Gettysburg and like all those Civil War sites and thousands of people died there. But you just go there thinking, oh, look, this is a cool fort. This is this. And wow, this is crazy. I remember the Gettysburg movie. and It's weird. It's weird. How, I mean, that's I guess after hundreds of years, it's uh, no longer too soon. <laughs> and then across the street, they have a, a store where you can go in. And you can uh, buy souvenirs, and you can buy books, including this book. It's so weird. Which I saw on sale. And the store is set up like a store look in the 60s. Is it all pretty respectful? It is. Honoring him? It's so weird to honor the place he died. The second you get off a plane in Dallas, you know how on the light posts there's those little flags? Yeah. They have JFK flags. Oh, Say JFK.org. So I think everyone's trying to remember it as respectfully as possible. Sure. Trying to focus on celebrating maybe his life as right, opposed right. to how graphic his death was. But anyway, we'll talk with Larry about this on the podcast next week. Again, the book is called The Kennedy Half Century. It's long. I know Don's been struggling through it. What page <laughs> are you on at this point, Don? Like 600. Oh, really? All right. So you're towards the end then. Since I think yeah. there's about 580 pages. So. <laughs> <laughs> you're in the bonus bonus footage. Yeah, I got extra. I got extra. But uh, it's the Kennedy half century, the presidency, assassination, and lasting legacy of John F. Kennedy. And then two weeks from now, we're going to go back to sports. Rich Cohen wrote a book called Monsters, the 1985 Chicago Bears, and the Wild Heart of Football. One other thing I wanted to mention is I am reading the Kennedy – or excuse me, the – Mike Tyson book? Yep. Wow. That is one awesome sports book. I, I never thought about trying to get Tyson on. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I just didn't think of it really. The guy who wrote it with him is the guy who wrote both of Stern's book. Okay. Ratso, his name is. And uh, they were both on Stern together. And then Tyson was also on Opie and Anthony. Yep. And his show was just on HBO, his one-man show. But I was able to get the book off the Pirate Bay, the e-version of the book. And it's long. I'm about six chapters in. I read it on the plane to Dallas and on the play home. And 
it's an incredible, incredible sports book. So it's not a book called Book of the Month, but it's something I'd suggest to check out. So three books this month, The Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling by David Shoemaker. You can hear our interview with him on Season 3, Episode 32. The Kennedy Half Century by Larry Sabato. He's going to be on next week, 335. And Monsters, the 1985 Chicago Bears and the Wild Heart of Football, Season 3, 36 in two weeks. We're going to take a break and come back and continue our Pearl Jam Superfan Series with Jack McDowell. Our next guest was born in California and played college baseball at Stanford, where he won a national championship. He played Major League Baseball from 1987 to 1999 for the White Sox, Yankees, Indians, and Angels. He won the 1993 Cy Young Award and is making his first appearance on the podcast today as the second member of the Pearl Jam Superfan Series. A warm sportscaster's welcome to former Major League Baseball pitcher Jack McDowell. How are you doing today, Jack? Hey, doing well. What's going on? Not much. Just really excited to to have you on today. You're the second uh, Cy Young Award winner to be on the show. John Smoltz is the first, and uh, we're really excited to have you on to talk about baseball and, and Pearl Jam. And uh, we really appreciate the time. All right, no worries, no worries, man. You know, I, one thing that that's really interesting to me, and it's it's somewhat unique to baseball, uh, a little bit unique to baseball, and I guess there's a little bit of this in hockey too, is this idea of being a young kid and being drafted by a Major League Baseball team, but also sort of committing to a college baseball team and having to make such an incredible life choice at such a young age. And for some people, it, it works out fabulously, and I guess for others, it doesn't. Uh, you're, I guess, a case of it really working out, having gone to Stanford, graduating from there, winning a national championship, and then going on to a great Major League career. When you look back on that decision, is there anything that kind of stands out about how hard of a decision that was or, or kind of maybe something in particular that made you lean one way or another? Well, you know, at the time, being a Stanford commit guy, there weren't guys that were decommitting to Stanford. There weren't even guys that left. I think like the, one of the first guys to uh, sign as a junior out of college was Steve Bouchel, and that was two years before I was a freshman. So guys, when guys went to Stanford, when they were committed to Stanford, they just they went there. They didn't sign. So basically, a lot of the pro teams were, you know, uh, wary of signing, of, of drafting me in the first place out of high school. So I really, I didn't go in a high spot. I went in the 20th round to the Red Sox. And um, they ended up, at the end of it, offering me second round money. So I actually did get close to going. But, you know, it's funny at the time, second round money at that time was $80,000. So. <laughs> You know that was that was big money way back then, but uh, yeah, it might convince me otherwise these days. You know, one thing that has been a big topic on this show for the last, since April has been winning a national championship. We had uh, Ed Cunningham on, who won a, a football national championship at Washington, and uh, my brother actually just won a hockey national championship at Yale. As everyone who listens to the show just rolled their eyes because it always has to come up like on every show, you know. So it's kind of people give us grief about it. But uh, talk a bit, a little bit about your experience winning a national championship, and and maybe what was unique, what's unique about it in baseball is you know the, the College World Series being played in Omaha every year, and uh, just what do you remember about that experience? 
Well, it, it's interesting because I kind of I, I grew up with it. Both of my brothers played baseball at USC, and they were seven and eight years older than me. And I actually got to watch my oldest brother Jim um, win a national championship there in 1978. So you know, I got to get out of school, fly back to Omaha with my parents, and watch my brother play and win a national championship. And that was such a big part of our family that. You know, the whole uh, the, the college camaraderie and that whole thing was just kind of ingrained in us. So, you know, to get an opportunity to do that, you know, however many years later, it would have been eight years later, um, was amazing. I mean, it was awesome, so much fun, and it was definitely, you know, one of those things I had a goal to do. Was your brother at your, and it might be a silly question, but did your brother get to then see you win the national championship? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. in fact, there for sure. Yeah, that's really, that's really sweet. So do you get, do you go back to Stanford all the time and are you part of the program at all? Are you still close with it or? Uh, I'm not super close. I mean, I, I had been up to a handful of alumni games. Um, we had a kind of what would it have been a uh, 25th anniversary little get together last year that I popped up and saw a lot of guys. Um, but it's you know it's not an it's not an everyday thing. And now that I'm living back, I'm living in uh, North Carolina now. I'm not in California, so not as easy just to john out there and you know take an hour flight up to see him anymore. Right. You know, after college, obviously you went on and and like we said, it worked out for you this time. You got second time around instead of getting drafted by Boston, you get drafted by Chicago, fifth pick in the first round. So it wasn't second round money anymore. Is obviously top end first round money, and. um you get to started there, and you know you made your major league debut at the end of the '87 series, and obviously your best year was the Cy Young year in '93. So a little bit of time there. Talk a little bit about developing in the major leagues, and and maybe what it was in Chicago that that they did that helped you develop into a top end rotation pitcher. Well, you know it was an interesting scenario in Chicago because when I got there in '87, um, it was a very H team. You know, there was probably 12, 15 guys in their mid to late 30s on that team, and it was definitely a team in transition. So in one respect, I was lucky to be drafted on a team that basically the entire team was turning over within two or three years. So, you know, I was brought up quickly and kind of thrown to the wolves right away. But I think um, um, having those veterans around the first couple years helped a ton. And having Carlton Fisk catch me those first, you know, handful of years all the way, you know, through my Cy Young was amazing too. Because all, you know, anytime you get a guy with experience, intelligence, and, and is willing to pass it on, obviously, you know, you're, you're going to be in a better situation than than without that. And I think having guys like him and uh, Charlie Huff, Jerry Royce, guys like that throughout the years really, you know, helped me figure out what it was that I needed to do to be successful. You know, I was a big help. You know, it's an interesting thing for a pitcher, I think, because when you think about baseball highlights and, and the things that replay over and over, they're usually they're usually hits. I think like the thing... Yeah, I, I, I joke with Dan Patrick about that all the time. I'm like, hey, that's crazy. You guys, you know, the only pitcher's highlights are home runs. Right. Yeah, it, Jack McHale threw a one-hitter, and look what it was! It was a 420-foot <laughs> home run off of, you know, so, and you're like, that's all you get to see unless you strike out like 22 in a game. Right, exactly. And then maybe you'll get to see you'll get to see two pitches of the twenty two strikeouts. 
Right, or if you're, if you're lucky enough to throw a perfect game or a no-hitter, they might sneak a couple highlights from that in. But then usually it's like, well, this was the great catch that saved the no-hitter here, this diving catch yeah, here. It's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a home run. The only, if you give up a home run, now you're going to be on Sports Center. That's the only good thing about it. Right, and I, I look at your career and I think about you know a guy who pitched 250 innings like four straight years and won 20, over 20 games in two seasons. And then when I think about, all right, what have I seen on TV – the only highlight I ever see is the game-winning hit in the 95 playoff. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a Seattle thing that runs Right, that's, that's Yeah, a, that is. How, how, like, is that something that bothers Like, Can you watch that now? Is that something that bothers you? Is it something like Yeah, you, you know, it's, it's one of those things that it, it's tough, but then as you go on, you know, where I'm at now and step away from it, it was such a cool moment in baseball that it's cool to be a part of that anyway. You know, I look back and I go out, and you know, a lot of people say that was the game that saved uh, the team from stay, uh, to stay in Seattle and what really got them back on the map and got everyone fired up about the, the team there. And so I look at that and I go, yeah, I guess, you know, it's a pretty cool part of history and one of the coolest series, you know, in history. So that's kind of nice to be a part of it. Obviously, it'd be nice to be on the other end of it, but, you know, it didn't happen. And that's the way it was. And so that's what we get to watch. You know, that's a really interesting perspective. I wonder if. I think about hockey goalies that maybe like gave up, and, and like Dominic Hasek maybe, who had this great career with five uh, Veznas and three MVPs. And I wonder if he thinks about the overtime winning goal in the Stanley Cup that Brett Hall scored on him, if he if he's able to have the same perspective. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to take a few years, but right. <laughs> yeah, to get get a different perspective. I always tell people one of the one of the best um, memories and moments that I had in my career is. The year that Kirby Puckett, and I forget, it was either 91 or 92, and he was entering free agency as one of the top players in the game. Minnesota, being a smaller market, didn't know if they are going to be able to afford him, didn't know if they are going to sign him back. He was talking with the White Sox. He's from Illinois, from the Chicago area. He had talked with us, you know, hey, you know, what do you think? We were fired up thinking, God, my puck might come play for us. Wow, that's going to be great. Turns out he signed back with the uh, Twins. Well, as it, as it turns out, um, I'm throwing their home opener. Uh, I'm throwing against them in their home opener the, my second start of the season of that year. And I get the first two guys out, and here comes Puckett. And they're like, you're now batting in the crowd. I mean, you're talking <laughs> home opener in the Metrodome, one of the loudest places around. Right. Thank you so much for staying. And you couldn't hear, thing. you know, you could, you, I couldn't even hear Kirby in the Kirby pocket. Number 34, Kirby! Pocket. <laughs> and I mean, it was just, it was crazy loud, standing ovation, one of the loudest things. Like, I'm getting chills up there on the mound, and I'm fired up, and I throw the first pitch to him about shoulder high, probably about 100 miles an hour, because I'm all fired up, and he proceeds to hit it. A pitch he should have taken, you know, just, hey, ball one, here we go. He hits it upper deck over the baggie. And you hear a place go from loud to louder, and I'm sitting there just smiling to myself going, this is unbelievable. And that's something that I've never seen that again, but it was such a crazy moment. And just a typical moment for a guy like that, you know. Hey, you need a big hit, or I'm fired up, you're pumped up here, here's a home run for you, you know. <laughs> Guys like him or Ripken or... I even said Barry Bonds. Anytime Bonds was at a milestone, it was like his next at bat. Oh, here. Oh, oh God. I need another home run here. Here it is. Boom. Right. They just don't. It wasn't like you were, you were waiting for a month. Just don't miss those opportunities, I guess. I, that's crazy. You know, it, it's funny because I asked Jan to do this as part of like a, a Pearl Jam Superfan series, and 
I almost look back at you and think of you as one of the very first Pearl Jam super fans. It just seems, you know, it seems like... Well, it's an interesting story, not a lot of people know. The reason I, I ended up hooking up with those guys in the first place is um, my ex-wife and Eddie's ex-wife, Beth. Beth, right. They lived together in San Diego when they're all living in San Diego together. So when I met my ex-wife in Chicago and I was playing music, she said, oh, I have another friend who's in a band, you know, Mookie Blaylock at the time. Hmm. And and so Way like back. you know I met Beth I met Beth and Eddie before even Pearl Jam, and they just finished you know starting to first we just finished recording the record so we got to hear all the rough mixes and all the final mixes and all that so kind of you know from before they were even a band and before they even knew what was going on we were kind of hanging and so he kind of got to watch me climb up to the pinnacle of baseball while I was kind of watching them climb up to the, the you know, the, the pinnacle of music. And that's the great thing about music is uh, you can keep doing it. <laughs> was there, have, the, the physical stuff's not going to get you down. Did you know, like listening to those early things, did you know like, wow, I didn't just meet a guy who's in this band trying out. I met a guy who's in a band that's going to be one of the bands of the generation. Like, I mean, you, you never know that right away because there's so many things that, you know, I like not a lot of other people like or things that you think are brilliant that bands that just, you know, I still think the replacements from the best bands ever. And, you know, I know they're being up for the rock and roll hall of fame and all that, but still tons of people don't know anything about them. Right. And they didn't get a, you know, to a level like that. When we first heard that record, you know, it wasn't like it fit any genre at the time because grunge, you know, really wasn't a typical grunge record. It was just like a rock record that was a little different, you know, kind of a bridge record between what was going on and, you know, what was about to happen. And one of the funniest things is we were, we were out on tour and we had that tape with us of all those songs. And this is the, uh, this is, um, my first band view before, uh, before the stick figure stuff. So we're out on tour and we're listening to this in the car and we decide, Oh, the song alive. That's pretty cool. Let's learn it. And so we would sound check every day, learning alive, <laughs> learning the song while we were opening up to the smithereens. And it's like, it's so funny because by the beginning to the end of opening up to the smithereens, that song broke. And they're like going, um, is that your guy's song? Are you kidding me? Is that your song that they're going to like, no, 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 we're just learning it and sound check. You dummies, you know, it's not our song. So it's, it's kind of crazy. That's nuts. Now I'm curious because you, you just went and seen them now a few a few weeks ago, and I think you told me there was a Charlotte show you went to. Yeah. And so you've seen some of the early. I mean, I guess you know you've seen them as way back as you can see them. And what do you think about the 20 plus years of Pearl Jam and where they've come? And when you stand there in the audience in Charlotte and you kind of watch their career flash before your eyes, and during Pendulum or whatever was the first song that night, is there anything that is there any like what what do you think about there? Well, it's 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 one of those things where I look back and I go, you know what? They were real smart. I think they they really solidified a long term plan. Um, they they solidified a long term plan. I think when they were. Um, Hooking up with Neil for the uh, Mirrorball record, right. and kind of talking to him about what it takes, all that, and and you know to be able to watch like how the first record went down when they just gave Eddie the songs and he kind of came up with lyrics and you know 
and then the next you know go around where you know Ed picks up a guitar and starts writing a little bit more to where they are now, where each of them writes a couple songs per record. I think it's been great, you know, just to, just to be able to not have any ego get in the way of any of the songwriting or any of the creativity or any of that and still be able to come up with great records and you know I think that's helped them a lot by being able to do that. Are you uh you enjoying Lightning Bolt? Yeah, yeah, it's cool. It's cool. And it's it's different because it, you know I'm not sitting here listening to a record like we used to because that's not what's done anymore. You listen to individual songs on uh you know that that you get off the internet and, and that's one thing that is disappointing that I'm not doing anymore is really buying records and listening to records in full like I used to. So might be something I have to think about changing. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you mentioned that, that kind of Neil Young mirrorball period because that was maybe the one time in the history where it really could have went either way. And I know they talked about it a little bit in Pearl Jam 20, and there's kind of some some you know people say you know it's like well right in between vitology and and no code you know it's like they could have been gone but jack irons pulled him in and said hey let's not break up let's do no code let's do this record and the neil young stuff came up and you know and, and it goes from there and then i i was i was standing there the other night watching matt cameron and uh, it was just a day after matt cameron had kind of announced that he was going to take a year off from soundgarden and I, i'd always wondered when soundgarden came back you know if push ever came to shove and Matt decided that he had to do Soundgarden. Would this band be willing to do it again with someone else? And um, I just wonder what you think of Matt Cameron and, and the where, where he fits in as now being the longest tenured drummer in Pearl Jam. People forget now that nobody's been in Pearl I Jam. Think, longer. You know, I think with all I think with all the different guys and personalities they went through, that once you know they got Matt, they're like, okay, this is the guy who you know I feel like it should have been way back when. So I think the match is there. You know what they would do. Soundgarden versus Pearl Jam. If he had to choose, you know, I who knows? Who knows what would happen? But I think they they probably all, would all work it out at some point. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, at this point, it looks like he cho- he chose Pearl Jam, you know, because he's not going to do any of the shows with Soundgarden in 2014. He says he'll be back with them at some point, but I don't know. It's just it's just an interesting interesting dynamic. Yeah. I want to ask you something that's really specific to you, and you can give me some perspective on being someone who's been a professional athlete and had a passion in music and and played in bands. There's a guy on the the Sabres, I'm in Buffalo, a hockey player named Drew Stafford. Uh, he grew up in Wisconsin. He played uh, at the University of North Dakota. He was a first-round draft pick. And he's always been a little bit of a little bit of a, a disappointment professionally. And people have maybe fairly or unfairly blamed some of his disappointment on his interest in music. He's a guitar player. He's not shy about how passionate he is about playing music. I don't know necessarily that he's ever been in a band that he's toured with quite to the level that you did, but I'm just curious, what do you think about, about music and how maybe your passion for music affected your career? And if you would buy into a fan, basically an uneducated fan, because it's, it's people who don't know, you know, Drew Stafford, who are saying this, saying, you know, he could have been an all-star player, but instead he spends too much time messing around in guitar or whatever. Yeah, who knows? I mean, to project anything on anybody, you have no idea. You know, he could have done this because, well, yeah, maybe, maybe not. But there's more to it than, you know, a lot of times there's more to it than just the talent level as to the, the, you know, it's like the way guys are wired, you know, the way things turn out. Uh, I think for me, it helped me stay sane, you know, because I wasn't, I was never super comfortable at the time being the baseball guy, being the athlete. You know, it's, it's, 
just was weird for me to always get introduced. Hey, hi, this is Jackie. Plays baseball, and I because I figured that just kind of that just kind of pigeonholed me into being something. And I'm like, and yeah, it really kind of didn't really tie it all in. But that's what you you know that's what you got pegged as. So I think music helped me kind of be as a little bit of a uh, an escape away from that and try to you know create another personality for me almost. One last thing, and I'll let you go. And again, I really appreciate this. Jack McDowell, the winner of the 1993 Cy Young Award, kind enough to take some time and talk about baseball and Pearl Jam. And this is the kind of thing that I would have never asked you probably two or three years ago. But a couple weeks ago uh, was the 20th anniversary of uh, an incident in New Orleans. And since Eddie Vedder can laugh and joke about it on stage, I figure there's no reason I can't ask you about what you remember about the infamous night in New Orleans that you and Ed had. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that was a uh, crazy night. So they were down there um, recording. What was the record? They were recording. Um, Must have been uh, Vitology, the right? Third record. Yeah, Vitology. What's that? It was Vitology. Yeah, Vitology. They were right. recording Vitology down there. So in the studio all day, and Urge Overkill was opening up for him, a Chicago band. He said, hey, why don't, you know, like, why don't you come down here and we'll hang out and you know see a couple shows, hang out and have some fun. Okay, great. They were, you know, in town for a few days, obviously, doing doing some recording and doing a couple shows. And So I went down there, and we went out after the show. Everything's fine. You know, people came up to Ed, and there's just this one guy that all night was in Eddie's face. You know, hey, you know, you're you full of crap. You know, you, you, you think you're Mr. Perfect, and you're trying to do this, and, you know, all over him. And it's like, and at that time, Eddie was naive to the fact that these types of people exist, so of course he was trying to convince this guy he was the real deal and he really cared about things and you know and this guy wasn't buying it and just kept getting more drunk as night and kept getting in his face every about five minutes and guys would have to bring him away and so we were leaving. Finally he got through the whole night without it and we're leaving and this guy follows that out of the bar, gets in his face, starts pushing and, you know, Ed spits in his face, and they go, and then all of a sudden, you know, I come across the street, I start going with a guy, and the bouncer from the bar follows me all the way across and, like, blindside cheap shots me, and I pretty much uh, met up with a um, a car bumper, which wasn't real good, but that's how that <laughs> night ended up. A bar fight with Pearl Jam. I, I'm not, I've never been in a bar fight, but I guess if I had to sign up for one, I think I'd, I'd want to sign up for one sticking up for Eddie Vedder. I don't know. <laughs> it was weird because we had, we had a couple things almost happen in Seattle too. It was like when we got together, people wanted to rattle cages, and you know, it was funny. We'd sit there and just go, "Are you kidding me? Come on!" You know, we had to get out of here, get away from these people trying to stir up crap. So it was weird. Well, I don't want to end it on a downer, so I'll give you one last one last thing. When you look back at at being a Pearl Jam super fan, as I coined you, I don't know if that's fair or not, but uh, it works for what we're trying to do here. Uh, do you have a favorite uh, Pearl Jam moment over the last uh, twenty plus years as being such a cool part of uh, the band's lore? Probably. Well, we, we had a trade off back when I was playing where um, I brought Ed out on the field and put him in uniform a couple times, and and he uh, I had to go up on stage and play with him one time. That was pretty fun. Um, Where was that? The, and what uh, did you play? Um, it was in Tampa, and we played Rockin' in the Free World, the the the, the typical right. encore for right. that period, um, which was the easy one to bring all the friends up for. You know, four chords and rock it out and smash it like Neil. And there you go, it's easy enough. <laughs> right. And uh, uh, the one, probably the best moment, though, was uh, 
we dressed up uh, Ed in a White Sox uniform, had him out there all pregame, and <laughs> I don't even know how. If I, we'd, if I could sit here and talk to him, we could probably remember how this all went down, but convinced one of the local reporters that he was a call-up. And he did, and me and, and Ed did an entire interview with this guy. This guy had no idea. No idea. I mean, we finished it, and, and guys are, like, walking around just going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And he's asking, like, full question, well, you know, how does it feel to be up? And it's like, yeah, I'm pretty much going to kick everyone's butt, and I, I'm, I'm planning on dominating here. And the guy's, like, writing it down going, oh, my God, i got a great story. This guy's right. an idiot, you know? <laughs> oh, it was unbelievable. It was, it was unreal. It was funny. Now, did you but let him in at it before he wrote end, it? At the very end, yeah. one of the radio guys comes over and goes, you know that said you better, right? And the guy's like, oh, oh, <laughs> oh, my God, okay, all right. Wow. It's like a 20-minute interview. That was fun. Well, this was very fun, and I can't thank you enough for, for being candid and cool about it, and thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. All right. That's, that's pretty, man. All right, I want to thank Jack McDowell for being a part of our Pearl Jam Super Fan Series. I want to thank Katie Baker for being on the podcast. Don't forget, you can find our stuff on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You can email us, thesportscasters at gmail.com. So, one last thing this week I wanted to, since we just talked a bit of Pearl Jam, tell everyone about my weekend. I uh, woke up early Friday morning. And flew from Buffalo to Detroit, jumped on a plane, and flew to Dallas for the first time where I met a friend. And we got in the car, and we, we checked into this hotel. So we're driving up to the hotel, Don, and it's one of these things where when you see it, you go, uh-oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I was waiting for the manager to come running out from behind, chasing a hooker off the property. <laughs> uh, it, was, it didn't turn out to be as bad as it looked. Yeah. The room was plenty clean enough, but in honest reality it was a dump right so we went in we cleaned up took a little nap went down to daily plaza talked about that seen uh jfk paid our respects and then we went and saw pearl jam at the arena where the dallas stars and mark cuban's dallas mavericks play i'll say a couple interesting things about the arena one is wow they had a lot of selections for snacks not necessarily food but i always feel like at the sabers games you either got a pretzel or nachos okay and maybe some can- like four dollars for thirty M and M's or something, but they had a lot of snacks. They had Slurpees and yeah, they had nachos and pretzels, but they just had all kinds of things for snacks. I thought that was cool. I watched that Shark Tank show, the Cuban show, and he talked about. I can't remember what the product was, but that's always one of his things. Like the people that sell like the more like chocolate dip pretzel type. Right, things. we can sell those. We in can sell arena. those in the arena. Right, yeah. and uh, there is a lot of selections of snacks. And the other thing I thought of when I was there is, wow, I. That's a horrible banner. I can't believe the stars get to claim that banner. That's so awful. F them and their painted <laughs> championship. So I was bitter about that and then got to see my 77th Pearl Jam show. And it was it was weird because – so I've seen seven this year, I guess. And uh, going back to the summer and, and the ones I've seen this year. And I guess that, that would probably be the lowest of the seven, I guess. But it was still, you know, it's still really good, obviously, and I had a lot of fun. But I think that these shows I've realized are all about the same, and then where you sit is what makes them better or worse. I feel like. 
Yes, I. Totally I feel agree. like yep. all the show, the Pearl Jam basically does about the same each time. They play for so long. They play so many different songs. It's such a different experience every night that in reality, all their shows are about a push. Yeah, and then what makes true, yeah. them better or worse is who you're around and where you're sitting and your proximity to the stage and what you see in that experience. And we were behind and above. And that stinks. And our, the people around us, they weren't good. Yeah. So then the next day, we woke up. And we drove to Oklahoma. We checked into a hotel about 30 miles from Oklahoma City where the show was. And then we drove. We went to OU. And I got to see Heisman Park and took a picture of Stan Bradford's Heisman, uh, Sam Bradford's Heisman Trophy and took a picture of the stadium and walked around OU for a few minutes, talked to some Sooner fans. They had a big victory that day. And then we went to the show in Oklahoma City. And the interesting thing about that show and that arena was just that that's where the su- the Supersonics now play. The Seattle Supersonics now play there. And uh, there was an interesting dynamic between the band and the fans oh. about that whole thing. Ed mentioned, you know, it's kind of, he said something like, you know, if you had a, a wife for a long time and it was a fine relationship, you treated them very well, and then they left you, you wouldn't like the new husband. Right, right. And uh, so it was a really interesting dynamic, and they played a song called Supersonic for <laughs> the Supersonics, which was pretty fun. And uh, we were right in front in the general admission pit for that. Oh, cool. And it was just such a great thing. And then... Pearl Jam posts the set lists online, and for the second time this summer, there's a song called Other Side. was on the list but crossed off, so uh. it's getting frustrating. And a girl proposed to a guy at, at the, the show. show. It was miserable. It took forever. Oh, on stage? Well, she didn't get on stage. She somehow got Vetter's attention, and he, he said, all right, because it was different. It was the girl to the guy. Right. So she gave him the mic, and this guy wasn't near. He was, like, behind, so they had to, like, usher him in. Oh, brother. And then... He's like, well, we'll play. The, we're going to change the list a little bit. We're going to play "Just Breathe" instead of "Other Side." Were people it pissed? wasn't exactly that. <laughs> Other ju- "Just Breathe" was on there, okay. But instead of it going "Yellow Moon," "Just Breathe," it went "Just Breathe," "Yellow Moon." Gotcha. And then "Other Side." But my thought was, well, probably it took so long, so they crossed. Oh uh, yeah, maybe. So, but it was a great weekend. I'm always down for some Pearl Jam. Twenty-two more to go till 100. One last thing from me this week. We already talked about uh, Half-Life, and we talked about Nintendo, and we talked about NASCAR, which some people might argue whether or not that's a sport. Well, another thing that I would say is most definitely not a sport, but is referred to as eSports. League of Legends, which I'm not a fan of, but I know people are crazy fans of this. They can fill up like Staples Center, right, with people just watching this? Last year... Oh, is that why you asked about Staples Center? It was. Oh, okay. Last year, 8.2 million fans watched the Season 2 finals. This year, uh, the event took place in the Staples Center. So you're watching teams, I think, of four aside or three. I think it's four aside. I'm looking at the venue. Okay, yeah, there's four guys kind of sitting at desks, and there's a big TV behind them. Sold out the Staples Center uh, to watch... South Korea's SK Telecom T1 and China's Royal Club. They battled it out. In addition to that, over 32 million people watched it via online streaming and across TV stations in China, Korea, and other countries. Nuts. It's absolutely insane. Uh, To use a comparison, it says worldwide the World Series drew a reported average 14.4 million. 
Now, granted, that's seven games or whatever it was, six games instead of one, but still, esports are a viable thing, and websites like Twitch TV are here to stay, it seems like. Like I said, I'm not a fan of League of Legends, but to get 32 million people to watch anything is quite remarkable. Uh, some of the officials reported that the hashtag Worlds was tweeted up to 20,000 20, times per hour at one point during the match and trended over 40 times in the United States throughout the playoffs. So that's crazy. I think it's awesome. If you've never heard of Twitch TV, I'm not sure if that's where it was streamed. It probably was. But if you've never heard of Twitch TV, Twitch TV is this site where you can go on. It's a partner of Justin TV where you can watch streaming videos. And Twitch is all people like doing crazy things like speedrunning Batman for the NES and ridiculous things like that. And there's a whole community out there uh, that I want to see these people in like Korea and China are celebrities. Like it's huge. It's finally gotten here. It's not the other way around where our culture gets to other places. This one, we're definitely late to the party, but real cool thing. Uh, if you're at all into video games, if you're a dork, Sitting, and I say that nicely, uh, considering myself somewhat of one. But if you're sitting at home in your basement practicing your esports while your buddies played at hockey, maybe someday you'll be playing in the Staples Center in front of 50 million people. I've never seen a diamond in the flesh. Cut my teeth on wedding rings in the movies And I'm not proud of my address In a torn up town, no postcode envy But every song's like gold teeth, grey goose Dripping in the bathroom, bloodstains, ball gowns Trash in the hotel room, we don't care we're driving Cadillacs in our dreams But everybody's like crystal Maybach Diamonds on your timepiece Jet planes, islands Tigers on a gold leash We don't care We aren't caught up in your love affair And we